from the studios of KPCW in Park City. It's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley, and I'm filling in for Nell Larson today. On the evening of February 3rd, a train derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, a town of 4,700 residents about 50 miles northwest of Pittsburgh. 38 of the trains, 150 cars derailed, and a fire ensued, which damaged another 12 cars. <laughs> the, the train, operated by Norfolk Southern, had been carrying chemicals and combustible materials with vinyl chloride, a toxic flammable gas, being of most concern to investigators. Residents on both sides of the Ohio-Pennsylvania border were ordered to evacuate their homes and businesses. And on February 6th, authorities performed a controlled release of the toxic materials from five tankers, and the contents were diverted to a trench and burned off. On this morning's show, we're going to be speaking with Chris Bowers, who is a professor of chemistry, and David Rick, a professor of law, both at Ohio Northern University, about the derailment, the impacts it is having on the environment and local residents, and how state and federal laws will influence the re remediation of the site and health and welfare of the impacted communities. Now, that's in the first part of the show. And then, Chris, in the second half of the show, we're going to be turning our attention to a recent research paper that suggests something unique about soil. That's right. Soil is the Earth's second biggest carbon storage locker after the ocean, and a research collaboration has shown that it's moisture, not temperature or mineral content. That's the key to how well the soil carbon warehouse works. The findings are important for understanding how the global carbon cycle might change as the climate grows more warm and dry in some locations. Jeff Hatton is a researcher at the School of Forestry at Oregon State University and the co-author of this study, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. We'll speak with him about the study, its findings, and what it means for future soil research and management. Environmental awareness and education, that's what this green earth is all about. Stay with us. Welcome to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley, filling in for Nell Larson today. And joining us in the first part of the show are two professors uh, from the Ohio Northern University. They are David Rack. I hope I, I'm pronouncing that name correctly. Dave, yes. are, you, are you there? He's nodding, yes. yes Sorry. Okay. Sorry, Chris. Uh, Dave is the professor of law and director of advocacy at Ohio Northern University's Pettit College of Law. And also joining us is Chris Bowers. He's an interim dean at, at the university, uh, at the Getty College of Arts and Sciences. He's also a professor of chemistry there. And we're having them on to talk about the, the train derailment that happened in Palestine, East Palestine, Ohio, uh, back in uh, early February, and the resultant uh, uh, chemicals that were released during this derailment. We're not going to get into the details of the derailment itself. The National Transportation Safety Board is handling on that, but we want to talk about the chemicals, their potential impacts to, their, to the environment, air, water, soil, groundwater, etc. And also the laws that take over here in, uh, to help support or supplement the ultimate remediation, cleanup, and some of the compensation potentially for the residents and businesses in the affected area. So, 
So, David and Chris, thank you so much for joining Claire and myself on this green earth. Thanks for the invitation. Okay. Glad to be here. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, we got both of you on, sharing the line. Let's let's focus on the chemistry first. Um, Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about the 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 chemicals that were released? I I have a list here that seems to suggest there were four or five or more. Can you give us a quick rundown on what these chemicals were and maybe a sense of what they're used for? Right, yeah, so that there seem to be four or five that are of particular concern. Those were the vinyl chloride, um, a couple of acrylate compounds, um, ethyl acrylate, butyl acrylate, and ethyl hexyl acrylate, um, isobutylene, and um, the final one's a bit of a mouthful, ethylene glycol monobutyl ether. Mm. Um, and so these are, these are all um, what I would consider high volume industrial chemicals. So these are produced and consumed um, annually in the millions of pounds to millions of tons range. So these are fairly common industrial chemicals. And so their transport would be a pretty common thing to occur. Um, several of them, the vinyl chloride, the acrylates, the isobutylene are what we would call monomers, which are small molecules that can be made to bond to each other to make larger molecules. Mm -hmm. So most of our familiar plastics and other synthetic materials or polymeric in nature. Um, and so that's that's their common uh, vinyl chloride. Most common use for it is to make uh, PVC polyvinyl chloride, which many of us are familiar with is, is uh, used in pipes. Right. Um, the acrylates are used in paints and sealants and adhesives. Isobutylene can be used to make a synthetic rubber type compound. It's also used to make um, additives for fuel that can reduce the emissions from our automobiles. Uh, and then finally, the ethylene glycol monobutyl ether is a very common solvent in paints and varnishes and may even be in certain types of felt-tipped and magic markers. So uh, the aroma of a Sharpie might be actually from that particular solvent. Okay, so th these chemicals were you know, released uh, in one way or another. Uh, I'm assuming were they all are they all transported in kind of a liquid form or or uh, do they get transported in in a gaseous state? These would have all been liquid inside the tank car. So all of them, ex well, the isobutylene and the uh, vinyl chloride, if they were out in the open, normal pressure, normal temperature, would be gas phase. Right but they're, they're pressurized in these tank cars. So everything's really in the liquid state inside of the tank car. Okay, so it would seem then from most of the reporting that's been done, what I've read, vinyl chloride is, is nothing to take lightly. It's a, it's a known carcinogen per the EPA. Um, like you say, it was it being transported in a liquid form, but it quickly volatilizes and gases off. Is that correct? Yes, correct. Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, and so that, and, that's, and it's also very combustible of all the chemicals. Yes, that's true. Okay. Um, so the Norfolk Southern made a decision um, I, I think it was several days after the initial accident to basically burn off uh, vinyl chloride because they, I guess their options were to let it, the tank, uh, 
kind of um, uh, release the vinyl chloride on its own, but it was also at risk of exploding. So I guess the, the decision was made to uh, what they call control burn this chemical. Can you talk a little bit why that uh, happens and, and what the control burn looked like? Right. So, so the concern, Governor DeWine explained it as a choice between two bad options. So really the, the, the decision to do the controlled release and burn was, um, again, vinyl chloride kind of wants to be in the gas phase. Um, if the temperature increases, the pressure could become too high for the tank car to contain. Mm. And then you have an explosion. Essentially, the tank car becomes a relatively large bomb at that point. Mm -hmm. And so not only is there you know, damage from the detonation, shrapnel flying relatively long distances, but at that point, then all the vinyl chloride's been released into the environment, which is, you know, we'd kind of like to minimize that, but the explosion gives you all of that release and all the other bad things that go along with it. Um, so they apparently had data that the temperature was increasing in a way that they predicted that the likelihood of that explosion was, was very high. And so at that point, your only option is to try to offload the vinyl chloride would have been very difficult to say loaded into another container under the conditions of the derailment and mm -hmm. the fires burning nearby. So they went to the controlled release to get the vinyl chloride out of the tank car so that pressure build would not cause an explosion. So the way I understand it is they sort of dug a trench and they, they um, actually I think did a minor detonation on these tank cars to um, produce a stream but basically that liquid, because it takes a little while, even though vinyl chloride wants to be in the gas phase, mm -hmm. it takes a while for it to absorb the heat. So it's going to be coming out as a liquid into this trench. Mm. It's going to be very flammable. So they ignite that. The reason they want to do the ignition, so the reason we're offloading the tank car, we want to avoid the explosion. The reason we're going to do the burn, or they decided to do the burn is, Vinyl chloride is a carcinogen. We really don't want to empty five tank cars of a carcinogen. Right. Combustion should destroy a big portion of the vinyl. Right. Genetic. So, again, kind of the you know bad options everywhere you look. You're really just looking to minimize the damage. So, avoid the explosion by you know releasing the material. Uh, minimize the amount of carcinogen you're adding into the environment by burning the material. Um, have this black plume of, of smoke that indicates particulates and other organic materials are there. It's not just clean uh, carbon dioxide and water. Right. And then the final complication on the burn is vinyl chloride, as you might guess, contains chlorine as well, and it's got to go somewhere. And it's the product of the burn of vinyl chloride. One of the products is going to be hydrogen chloride encounters water in the atmosphere in our lungs in our eyes is going to turn into hydrochloric acid so it's a very irritating material does it also you're kind of popping in and out uh i heard you say yeah hydrogen chloride which is acidic could it also produce uh phosgene gas too um so yeah you're cutting in and out a little as well <laughs> the um the other concern was the potential to make something like phosgene, which yeah. is a very highly toxic material that also contains chlorine. 
Um, I think hydrogen chloride is by far going to be the major product that the chlorine is going to going to form. Okay. All right. So basically, yeah, you, you burned off the vinyl chloride, and also you're burning off all these other chemicals too. They they have some flammability associated with them too. So, like you say, you have this this stew of of fire, uh, liquid uh, chemical fire. Um, lots of carbon molecules in there so that's why it burns very dark and that that iconic image of all that black smoke going up and trailing off high into the atmosphere is what most of us you know now see over and over again uh on the news um but there's also chemicals now that seeped into the soil and potentially the surface water and maybe even depending on the depth to the water table into the groundwater so all of these are now concerns that Norfolk Southern and, and the other uh, agencies, and we'll talk more about that uh, with Dave in a minute, uh, are having to address. Do I have that right? Yeah, so in a lot of ways, the, the gas, the, the pollution to the air kind of take care, takes care of itself because right. weather conditions are gonna move the, the, anything that gets into the air along and it'll be diluted in the atmosphere. So sort of the ongoing uh, potentially chronic concern is around, you know, ground, groundwater, uh, surface water and the soil. And so they, they've already started the remediation at the site and, and all sorts of strategies to both clean up the site, but also to do a certain amount of surveillance to, to determine, you know, if there are problems, say with drinking water, that would be one of the major concerns. Right. And so now uh, efforts are being made to, to test the soil and the surface water and groundwater. Uh, it's been several weeks. Uh, is there any uh, estimate of uh, public water wells, potable wells being impacted by these chemicals? As far as I understand, none of the testing has shown any of the drinking water supplies to be unsafe at this point. Mm -hmm. um, but that's... You know, so there, there's a couple of ways this could have been impacted. There was definitely a release to surface water and that we, we heard about the fish kill and the aquatic animals that were affected by that. Some of that plume then made its way into the Ohio River, which certain municipalities do draw water from. But there's again, a big dilution effect when you get into the Ohio River. So um, that's more of a surveillance and a testing to make sure that those materials don't get into the drinking water supply. Probably more concerning and something that's going to take longer to, to sort of play out is the potential impact on groundwater, mm -hmm. where again is a source of drinking water from wells. And so they're drilling wells at the site of the spill to see how contaminated the groundwater is right there. And I believe they've also are going to drill some wells between that site and the site of the municipal source of groundwater that's used for drinking water. So at this point, a lot of that, especially on the groundwater, really becomes more of a surveillance. I don't know that they have any active plans to try to remediate the groundwater, but they are going to be looking out and trying to make sure that this contamination does not get into drinking water supplies. Right. Having worked in the field for uh, decades, uh, one th way of uh, remediating the groundwater is to take those wells, drill those wells, not only to monitor and test the groundwater, but then also pull that groundwater up? 
basically, pulling all that contaminated groundwater up, sending it to tanks or so for either remediation in some form or another. And that kind of walls off the contamination from migrating downstream to the potential, like you say, public water, municipal water wells that might be downstream. So there's a number of different types of remediation that can be employed. That's just one of them. Um, If if you're just joining us, we're speaking with uh, Professor Chris Bowers. He's interim dean at the Getty College of Arts and Sciences and also professor of chemistry at The Ohio Northern University. And also uh, David Rack. Claire, you want to jump in? I'm going to, yeah, I just have a, I'm curious. um, We've been talking about, uh, you know, what happened with the train derailment and the chemicals, but also uh, do you have kind of a description of the area in which this happened? Because, Mm. you know, is it's a bit of a rural place. So there might be farmland or things like that that Mm -hmm. are also affected. Um, Can you give us a little bit of a description of the place? Yeah, it's my understanding that, yeah, this was in a small town, and you're right, it's a relatively rural area, sort of uh, eastern Ohio, practically to, to Pennsylvania. Um, and so there's no doubt farmland around there. I think probably the major concerns, again, are going to be in terms of the spread of the chemical and any any sort of outfall from, say, the combustion and the controlled burn, sort of air is going to take these materials um, somewhere Surface waters are obviously going to, you know, take take it ultimately to the Ohio River. I don't think there's probably a huge concern about um, soil contamination spreading. It's mm. it's not, you know, it's harder to spread in soil than via water or or um, air. Um, and mostly, what they need to do and what they're in the process of doing in terms of the soil contamination clearly gets contaminated when this liquid. Uh, chemicals get in the soil is they're 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 removing the soil they're trucking out large volumes of the soil uh, for remediation or secure landfill so as long as the cleanup is done properly and it's tested that they've removed what needs to be removed i don't think there's sort of ongoing concerns about the soil or impacting on agriculture or or anything like that okay if i can uh, if i can uh, uh add just a bit to that in terms of the immediate area, this was in town. It's a small town, but the derailment occurred actually within the town. Um, nearby were industrial, uh, some mixed business areas, I think including some retail. And also, um, according to reports from the EPA, there were residences within 1,000 feet mm. of the actual derailment. So there there were human areas nearby. Chris is right about the, the broader area, but in terms of the immediate area, it was a kind of a mixed uh, spot area in, within the within the town of East Palestine. Okay, and that's that's Chris Bowers, not Chris Cherniak. Make sure. Yes, correct. correct. <laughs> um, but now we're, that's this is David Rack. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, yes, David. Correct. Okay, correct. and mm-hmm. and you're you're a professor of law, so let's turn our attention to the law, the the rules, um, the obligations, the requirements that state and federal maybe even local laws play in now as we we're talking the, the 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 remediation the cleanup to the environment and also um the impacts to local businesses and residences there are there's the state epa there's the federal epa in this instance this is un- kind of unique because the impacts cross state lines and so maybe the state but maybe the state of pennsylvania's 
um, EPA or DEQ or DE, I think it's DEP, may get involved in this too. So can you give us a quick thumbnail sketch of, of all the, the alphabet soup of organizations that will be involved in overseeing this cleanup? Well, there were a whole bunch initially because it was an emergency response. So there was at the state level, um, there's an emergency management authority in Ohio. There's FEMA. Mm -hmm. um, there was the uh, Ohio EPA. Um, the Ohio Department of Natural Resources got involved because mm. of the fish kill right. and, and potential injury to species. Um, in Pennsylvania, as you mentioned, there's the Ohio uh, Department of Environmental Protection, the DEP. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, there's the US EPA, which uh, responds when there's hazardous materials. Some of those agencies are, are moving a little bit out of the immediate uh, uh, foreground activity because the process is transitioning from uh, emergency response to cleanup. Now with cleanup, I think you'll probably see primarily um, three agencies, although again, the, there's, there's some state agencies that will continue to be monitoring things. For example, the Ohio Department of Health has set up uh, clinics uh, for local residents to visit for free and, and, and if they have uh, health symptoms that they think are related. Um, but primarily we're gonna see the US EPA, um, the Ohio EPA, and to some extent, the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection. Um, the Ohio uh, and US EPA are at this point starting to operate primarily under the authority of the uh, most significant federal statute, federal law here, mm -hmm. and that's called CERCLA. It's the Superfund Law, the Comprehensive Environmental Response Liability, uh, uh, Compensation and Liability Act. Yeah. Um, and it it provides for two things. It provides for all of the steps involved in the cleanup, both the statute and then there's a set of regulations uh, that go along with it. Uh, and it also provides for our um, liability for responsible parties and what they're liable for. Pursuant to that, uh, last Tuesday, a week ago, the US EPA issued uh, a unilateral administrative order for removal actions to Norfolk Southern. It's about a 70 page document, about 30 pages of text and 30 pages of specifications. And basically operating under the authority of the Superfund law, the US EPA ordered um, uh, the railroad to um, start the cleanup process and specified in considerable detail what that involves. Um, it's going to involve the railroad developing a number of plans and then taking a number of actions. They have to come up with um, basically within nine days of that, so about two days from now, a removal work plan subject to the um, US EPA approval, a sampling and analysis plan which is part of some of the things that Chris Bowers mentioned about monitoring the soil and groundwater and a health and safety plan for workers and residents in the area. And all these will be submitted to um, the uh, US EPA. Um, the Ohio EPA is, is uh, being involved to some extent in continuing some of the sampling. As Chris Bowers mentioned, they're um, putting in uh, monitoring wells for groundwater. Um, and the US EPA will retain a very considerable oversight role in this process. They've designated on-site coordinators uh, for, they have two regions here because Ohio 
is in Region 5, I believe, of the EPA, and mm. Pennsylvania it's in Region 3. Mm. So that's some of the framework. Okay. Uh, I have to chuckle again, having worked in the business, the hardest part of everything you said is that getting it, getting all those documents in in nine days. <laughs> yes, <laughs> good. I'm sure. <laughs> um, but yes, they still have a lot of work. And ultimately, this is Norfolk Southern that is actually doing the work. Let's be clear. It's not the staff, EPA staff or Ohio DEP or Ohio EPA or others. They're actually out there doing the work. It's Norfolk Southern that is being is being held responsible for the actual cleanup effort. Is that correct? That's correct. And, and of course, they can they can employ contractors yes. who will be acting as their agents. Yes. Yeah, and 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 the uh, state and federal uh, regulatory agencies are doing providing oversight and review of all this. Right. Uh, uh, um, to give you a, a, a one example of that oversight, there was a, a pause over the weekend yeah. in material that's being removed from the site and transported to licensed hazardous waste um, storage and treatment facilities because I think the U.S. Uh, EPA was not convinced that the places they were taking the material to, one in Texas and one in Michigan, were either uh, appropriate or the best under the circumstances. So there was a short pause and then they resumed transporting some of this material. And the material consists of liquid from um, surface waters uh, and soil that's being removed at the site, including soil under the tracks. Um, uh, and so they've designated some some new licensed facilities. Some of them are in Ohio uh, that will be receiving this material. But that was done because the uh, uh, US EPA decided to step in uh, and um, review the decisions that Norfolk Southern had made as to where this material would go. Mm. And that's my curiosity is you still have these chemicals, you still have to put them somewhere. You're still trying to figure out where to transport them to. And from my understanding, um, they are now being ship it, shipped in liquid form, like you said, and they're being injected into an underground well in Ohio. Is that correct? So the other federal statute that applies here, it's called uh, RICRA, the Resource Conservation Recovery Act, deals with um, facilities that are licensed uh, and it, it's heavily regulated uh, in order to uh, uh, to be able to transport in order to be able to treat and store hazardous wastes. Uh, and so this material is going to licensed facilities. Uh, incineration is one form of treatment, but deep well injection is another uh, fairly common form of treatment uh, for hazardous material. Hmm. Okay. That so, to me just sounds also like an accident waiting to happen. Well, but. The, you're right. That has to be monitored and and uh, carefully managed too. Yeah, I but, guess my question is: there a there is not like a great solution though when these things happen and they're happening over and over again frequently throughout our nation. Um, in, Dave, incineration at, at very high heat can remove a lot of the hazardous material from uh, contaminated soil, for example. Um, but that's that's expensive. Yeah. Um, and um, it's uh, it's it's one alternative, but the deep well injection is another. To, to be perfectly honest, I, I agree with you. Personally, I'm not keen about deep well injection, but it is permitted uh, and allowed under the law. Okay. Well, uh, we've got a few more minutes, and I still, uh, Dave, I, I, I got a, more, a couple more questions now about um, uh, the citizens, the residents of East Palestine, 
saw an article in the New York Times last week about, of, no surprise, uh, a lot of citizens and businesses uh, hiring lawyers and attorneys, lots of attorneys coming to town, maybe try, you know, trying to sign up people to sue Norfolk Southern. Um, maybe there's other lawsuits directed towards one institutions or organizations or another. How does all that work? Uh, is it going to be mostly individual lawsuits or all, does all this just em end up into kind of a large class action effort? Well, Norfolk Southern is, is liable to um, governmental entities for any of their cleanup costs, including oversight and supervision. And that's under the Superfund law. Mm -hmm. What the Superfund law does not directly cover is claims by businesses and private individuals. Mm. So those claims would um, be pursued if they're going to pursue them in court. They would be pursued under um, other traditional um, uh, legal causes of action. And so you you will have representatives, you will have citizens being represented by lawyers if they wish to pursue such actions. Norfolk Southern says it's setting up a, a compensation, a kind of a voluntary compensation scheme. I haven't seen all the details of that. Mm. I have to tell you some of the plaintiff's lawyers are concerned that citizens who participate in that might be deemed to have released any other claims mm. uh, for health damages, long-term long impacts, uh, and so on. So I think the answer to your question is citizens uh, can pursue those claims under the law, but they're not directly covered under the federal cleanup law. So they would be through private lawsuits. And I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if um, after a bunch of those suits are filed, the courts consolidate them or the lawyers consolidate them into class actions. Right, right. Okay. Um, and I'm just trying to get, get my head around. Oh, here is my, what happens? Well, ultimately, who defines the site, the impact area being cleaned up? I know this is, uh, I know the answer is going to start with depends, but how, who ultimately says, okay, Norfolk Southern, you've cleaned up the soil adequately, you've cleaned up the groundwater adequately and the air, et cetera. Whose decision is that? And what if Norfolk Southern says, no, we're not going to that degree of cleanup. We think this site is cleanup. Our toxicologists say this, you know, it becomes a battle of toxicologists or so in that sense. So um, what would happen then is um, the U.S. EPA, probably in consultation with Ohio EPA, but primarily the federal EPA uh, has to be satisfied mm -hmm. that um, the railroad has met all of its obligations under the law for cleanup. And if the Ohio EPA is, not, excuse me, if the EPA is not satisfied mm. uh, and Norfolk Southern were to walk away, um, the EPA would then itself finish whatever steps necessary uh, and not only make a claim against Norfolk Southern, but under the Superfund law, um, they have the ability to charge triple damages, treble damages, up to three times the amount of their cleanup cost mm. if Norfolk Southern stops cleaning up without, under the law, uh, without sufficient reason. Uh, and that's kind of the stick they hold over Norfolk Southern, mm -hmm. which is to say, you clean it up until we're satisfied, and if you don't, and then we have to incur additional costs, we'll seek three times that amount. Okay. 
We don't. We we got. We had talked about this for a lot well, longer. This is a big issue throughout our nation, and this is one example of what happens. Yeah. Well, this is that's there are hundreds of Superfund sites around the country mm -hmm. that are the results of uh, maybe accidents like this or long-term neglect or so. And there's usually not even a finger to point to well, that's for responsibility. The, to Dave's point, that's because lots of companies occasionally will walk away, quote-unquote, or may just go bankrupt. Yeah, they um, go defunct and then... And, and then the EPA takes over the cleanup mm -hmm. or the state EPAs, etc. All right. So we've got to wrap up. Lots more questions. We want to thank you both for taking the time to join us uh, this morning. David Rack, Professor of Law and Director of Advocacy at the Ohio Northern University, Pettit College of Law, and Chris Bowers, Interim Dean and, college and Professor of Chemistry. How, how do you do both, Chris? Congratulations. Uh, at the Getty College of Arts and Sciences, uh, at, also at the Ohio New Northern University. Thank you so much for joining us. I think we're going to loop back with the two of you maybe in uh, five or six months to get an update on how things are going there in East Palestine. Sounds good. All right. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Appreciate a quick break for uh, some underwriters. And when we come back, we're going to turn our attention to soil. Hey, we're still talking about soil, but in this case, uh, the carbon content in soil. Something and, we want to be absorbed in yeah, the soil. Some, <laughs> some interesting news about soil and its unique qualities. It's this green earth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley, filling in for Nell Larson. That's right. And joining us uh, for the remaining part of the show is Jeff Hatton. He is a researcher at the School of Forestry at Oregon State University. And he is the co-author of an interesting uh, paper that was just... Uh, printed in the, oh, I will get it right here, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. It talks about soil and some of the um, unique qualities of carbon within the soil uh, or what, what, okay, I'll, I'll stop here. What? Okay. I'm sorry, Jeff. Um, I'm still on the, I'm still on my first interview. Um, Jeff, talk about the findings of your paper. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th thanks, Chris. Um, yeah, so our, our paper looked at uh, uh, soil organic matter in its relation to uh, climate. So in particular, temperature and moisture and, and these sorts of things. Um, we examined about 40 different sites um, uh, across the uh, the U.S. from the National Ecological Observatory Network, uh, collecting soils from all these all these places and um, uh, and, and, and analyzing them for a bunch of different things, uh, we uh, we focused on what we're calling the mineral associated organic matter. And so, uh, organic matter um, in soils has gone through a bit of a paradigm shift over the last few decades. We used to think of uh, things like uh, humus and humified material as useful ways of explaining how soil organic matter functions, but now we think of it more as different associations with, with mineral material in soils. And so you could think of 
unprotected material like a leaf fragment or a roof fragment, or, or sorry, a root fragment. Mm. Um, it doesn't have any any protection against microbial attack or decomposition or anything like that. As that sort of material gets broken down, dissolved in solution, it can interact with the with the with the mineral surfaces, and it'll form a, a chemical bond essentially with the with the mineral surfaces. And that and that carbon represents about eighty percent of all the carbon in in mineral soils. <clears throat> and so that's that's the part that we focused on, and we looked at um, we used radiocarbon or C fourteen dating to gauge how fast that material cycles. And so the slower cycling carbon in soils is gonna be older. And this mineral associated carbon is the is the oldest fraction of the carbon in, in the soil. And so what we found was the, the amount of carbon in the soil and, um, and how fast that it cycles in soil was related to how wet the ecosystem was. So in wet ecosystems, we found a relationship between the amount and how fast the carbon cycles. But in dry ecosystems, we did not find that relationship. And so what that means is like, you know, if things, things that basically speed up carbon cycling are going to impact wet environments uh, differently than dry environments. So temperature, temperature forces lots of biological processes, right? So you know, as temperature warms, it could impact wet environments, but it might not in impact the soil organic matter in dry environments the same way. So you're saying essentially climate change could be an effect on um, soil sequestering this carbon. And these are things that when you went into this research, uh, it unveiled a lot of these things to so you didn't go in knowing that this was something that you were going to uncover, correct? Well, we sort of had a suspicion. Mm -hmm. uh, so we did design an experiment that was presented in a, in a previous paper to this, where we showed, we basically took all 40 of these soils and, and different horizons from the soils and exposed them to different temperatures and different moisture regimes or in, and combinations thereof. Um, and, and looked at the CO2 production. So we just isolated them in the lab and did what we call a laboratory incubation of this of this material. And what we found was that, uh, uh, you know, in the wet environments, the mineralogy was uh, defined by iron and aluminum containing materials, and those soils were more temperature sensitive. And then in the dry environments, the mineralogy that it was stabilizing organic matter was dominated by calcium and magnesium containing minerals. Mm. And that was more moisture sensitive. So we had a little bit of a suspicion that, you know, there was these sorts of things going on, that, that temperature and moisture were both important. And how do you think that this research is going to inform how we move forward? What do you think that this research can tell us? Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, you know, climate modelers and ecosystem modelers have, have all, you know, have used temperature and moisture as ways to, to sort of force their models and to look at, you know, global change and its impacts on ecosystems and and things like that. And I think, um, you know, when it comes to soils, maybe the view has been a little bit more simplistic where maybe they've only used uh, temperature. And so this paper just basically suggests to those modelers that, you know, the thing that you're doing in the above ground with the ecosystems, you know, changes in moisture and this kind of a thing. Let's also do that same thing below ground. We need to look at changes in moisture and particularly in these dry environments um, to, to, to get an accurate 
uh, picture of or prediction of of how these soils might change with climate change. Okay, so how has the paper been received so far? Obviously, there's always going to be some alternative viewpoints, maybe some pushback. Where how's how's the paper been received? Uh, well, I, I'm not exactly sure. I think maybe soils moves a little bit slower than other fields. So we haven't really had much pushback yet. Uh, I think, you know, in some ways, these sorts of ideas have, have been bubbling in the background, but people just haven't had the data sets to, to look at it. And so uh, our, our data set is one of the, you know, one of the broadest and really most thorough data sets we did. I don't know how many numbers we collected on every sample, but it, it, it bordered on the insane, ah. <laughs> uh, you know, amount of data, you know, on every sample and, uh, that, that we collected. And so it'll really allow us to sort of, uh, you know, say these things with, with more confidence than maybe has been able to be done in the past. Okay. okay. Now, going back, when we're talking about soil, of course, you can go and define soil in many different ways. Some soil has already has large amounts of carbon as part of it, but you can go to arid environments that have, are more sandy soil or coastal plains that have, have lots of more, more sandy soil-based loam or and the clay loam. Does this uh, idea, this, this function of moisture, uh, play a role in all those different types of soil settings? Yeah, yeah. So in, in some ways, we found it as a, as a bit of a switch, huh. right? And so in, in we, what we're calling wet ecosystems um, are those ecosystems that have basically more precipitation than evapotranspiration, right? So in general, on average, there's, there's basically water flowing through the soil into the groundwater, into the streams, that kind of thing. Whereas in arid environments, you know, where evapotranspiration is, is greater than the amount of precipitation coming down, <clears throat> you know, excuse me, maybe there's not as much or, or not as frequent uh, flux of, of water through the soil. And so, um, uh, uh, yeah, so, so, you know, in places like coastal environments, temperate environments, those are going to be your wet systems. And of course, uh, you know, inland areas like, you know, in Utah and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, and in the, in the desert Southwest and that kind of thing, those are going to be more of your, your the, the dry ecosystems that we're talking about in this paper. Okay. And you, um, you say that this is, is kind of giving you a greater understanding of how the ecosystems are changing or evolving as our climate warms. Can you speak to that? And, you know, we are obviously have huge conversations around the Great Salt Lake and how that ecosystem is changing as the water evaporates. Uh, and, and what are you seeing with that, with the ecosystems? Like what, what does that future look like if, if uh, the moisture in the soil continues to evaporate and go away? Yeah, so yeah, as the, as the you know, as ecosystems do become drier, they, 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 they should function more like the dry dry ecosystems in, in our study, which basically means that we have have little ability to predict what's going on in those ecosystems because we didn't find the relationship between the rate of carbon cycling and the amount of carbon in those soils. And so, um, yeah, so it'll be difficult to predict. And I think, you know, one of the things that, uh, that my colleagues have done is they're, 
means they've got a they've got a they're proposing new research to basically look at these sorts of questions. Uh, you know, what's going to happen with um, um, you know, well, both wet and dry ecosystems with regard to these transitions from from you know wet and you know warm or cold to to drier ecosystems, you know, and, and that sort of a thing. So they're planning on uh, uh, some soil warming experiments in these areas and um, and some other things like that mm. to basically get a to get a better idea of of yeah how. How, how soil moisture changes, how soil temperature changes are really going to impact these ecosystems. Because what we've done is basically just a, a snapshot of what's out there right now across, you know, a pretty significant number of soils and, 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 and data streams, and then, a, you know, a, a couple of laboratory experiments. But what we, what we need to do now are, are more ecosystem level experiments, soil warming experiments, changes in moisture, uh, uh, those sorts of experiments to really get a to get a handle on on your on your question. Okay, yeah, that's what I was going to ask. What's what's next? You know, what research follows on from here? Yeah, yeah, and that's something that. Uh, um, so I became a, a department head over the last couple of years, and so it sort of re- reduced my ability to do do much science these days. But uh, my colleagues are, are now they're steaming ahead. And, and they're basically designing these experiments in, in collaboration with the National, National Ecological Observatory Network, which is this really great uh, NSF-funded uh, uh, project where they have um, um, research sites across, you know, 40 different biomes or so in the in the U.S. and uh, you know, looking at carbon exchange with the ecosystem, soils, uh, above ground components, and you know, that kind of a thing. And so. Um, hopefully, you know, I think they're still waiting on a funding decision, but, um, uh, you know, hopefully that gets funded and they can continue to pursue these questions. Okay. Where can people go to, uh, read this paper or, and learn more about the work that you and the, uh, OSU School of Forestry is doing? Well, you could go to, uh, the, our, our, the Oregon State University College of Forestry website. I think uh, all of our press releases are, are there. Uh, this paper is in the proceedings of uh, the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, most recent edition, it came out, I think, last Monday. So you should be able to still find it on the uh, on the on the webpage, and then you can just uh, search for my the lead author's name, which uh, her name is Kate Heckman. So uh, you should be able to find her papers that way. A Michigan gal, <laughs> a fellow Michigan well, okay. gal. Okay, that's right, yeah, Michigan well, yeah. Tech. <laughs> okay. We'll, yep. we'll leave it a at shout that. out to Michigan. As always, <laughs> got to get one in there. Uh, Jeff Hatton, researcher at the School of Forestry at uh, Ohio at Oregon State University. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning on this Green Earth. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Claire. Thank you so much.